Oh my goodness. What a sincere joy and privilege to be here with you today. Uh, this church has loved us so well. And I was, I was telling Drew, we played golf last week. Um, and if you wondered what Drew does on all the other days besides Sunday, he just plays golf. So, uh, doesn't, I mean, what do pastors do anyway? And so, um, telling Drew, you know, I mean, we can't say enough about this church and how you have loved us and blessed us, right? And so just try to pour this, you know, thankfulness onto you and this uh, uh, encouragement and uh, acknowledgement and and the personality of the church, and, and maybe it's just like Oak Harbor, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's the military background, I don't know, but it's just like, yeah, whatever. You know, just sort of, that's the, that's the feedback. Yeah, it's just who we are, you know, and it's just actually quite humbling because the history here uh, with you and us is long enough that you're savvy to our work. You understand that there are ups and downs. Uh, you've understood us to always tell the truth about our story. We don't come in with superlatives uh, and act like we're saving the world or something, that sometimes the story is hard. We tell that story too. Um, and so in that, it's, you're like a spine to us, and that's humbling. Um, when I'm here, when I walk into this room, um, I, I have this sincere sense that like, I wish I could always be here. Like, I wish I went to church here. Um, I wish I could be with you every week. It's, it's the feeling that I have when I'm in Indonesia. It's the feeling that I have when I'm at home. And it's an assignment my wife gave me when we were very young. She said, whatever you do, I want you to be torn. When you're away, I want you to be home, want to be home. When you're at home, I want you to want to be away. And, and that was an assignment, like a prophetic assignment from God. And, and as, a, as a result, really what it has given me is wherever I am, that's where I want to be. When I'm at home, I want to be home. And when I'm here with you, it is, it is sincere. My love for you, my affection for you, uh, your warmth towards me uh, is, is just profound. And so, now I thought your pastor loved me. Um, I let him beat me at golf. He is the only pastor in Foursquare that I let beat me at golf. Um, and uh, so I've got a little bit of rebellion in my heart this morning. Normally I'll wear Seahawks colors, but I came this morning in full Denver Broncos uh, coloration. Um, you know, he, I, I let him beat me at golf, and, and, and I think that's like an act of trust. Uh, he trusts me and includes me in your preaching series. He's one of two or three pastors that when I come, he asks me to fit into the series and bring a message consistent with what... Uh, with what he's teaching that last time I was here I preached from Nehemiah 13 and so the gift for me in that is that I will use those messages uh, I will I will cut and paste those forever um, and the last time I preached Nehemiah 13 was three weeks ago at an accord network that's our trade association for Christian relief and development groups at, a, at an executive retreat a CEO retreat and it was incredibly well received this church ended up blessing a bunch of CEOs from uh, from our field of work, our Christian field of work. And so, but I'm not sure he likes me anymore because you're in this series on Titus. And he says, hey, why don't you do Titus 3? Titus chapter 3, submit to government authorities. That's the assignment I have. And so I'm just going to say I'm going to preach this message and it has been wonderful knowing you all because 
I am not going to get invited back after this, you know, you know, read the room. Okay, it's Oak Harbor, Washington. I make no assumptions. You know, I know that we're not a homogenized group, that uh, even if uh, a group as a whole kind of leans one way, it doesn't mean everybody does, right? And, and uh, you can't define us that way. Our convictions uh, in our culture, they come through a lot of pathways and we land where we land. Uh, and so... You know, to generalize, maybe the room's a little red. I don't know. You know, uh, there's probably a little blue in here somewhere uh, if you want to kind of define things that way. And uh, and maybe not completely satisfied with government. I don't know. Um, are we ever completely satisfied with government? I mean, it's, uh, it's a thing, right? Uh, but then this community, so informed by the military and... And with this deep cultural understanding of up and down authority, probably more than anybody else in the world knows. Uh, in the church, we call it a blessing structure. I don't know if that stands true or not, but that's just sort of the euphemism we put on it to say, yeah, you have to do what the boss says, right? And uh, it's a blessing structure. I'm blessing you right now. I know you don't want to clean that toilet, but go do it. It's, you know, it's, um, it's an interesting cross-section uh, that we even have here specific to this community and then the challenge to teach the whole counsel of God's word. I've never uh, pastored a church for a long period of time beyond an interim basis. So the longest I've been a pastor in a church is six months. And I mean, you can, in six months you can do like one sermon series. I preached through Acts um, it, in that six-month span. Um, but our... our our assignment is to teach and preach the entire counsel of God's word. Well, there are some portions of God's word that are not fun to teach. Um, you know, that are not as, as uh, they don't send everybody out the door feeling as good, you know, and, uh, and giving as much money and, you know, things like that. And so um, the fact is, is that you know, even when you talk about leadership, whether it's in the church or whether it's in our communities or whether it's in our higher forms of government, that leadership does disappoint. Um, in fact, it's guaranteed to disappoint because these seats are filled by humans, right? And then the arrogant uh, proposition is, is that, well, I could do a better job. I'm not sure I could. I, I told myself and a whole bunch of churches over the last two and a half years, like, I wouldn't. I've got all these opinions about how we should have managed COVID. Like, I, I'm preacher boy. What do I know? I'm just pastor boy. I don't know how, to, how we would have managed through that. What do, what do I know? I've got no medical background. I've got no governmental background. Uh, the guarantee is, is that whatever you do, somebody, if not everybody, is going to be angry with you. And so whether it's in your professional life or in the church or in government, we get those disappointments just like at eye level from the free shelf. I mean, they're just for free. And you know what? There's never been a time in history where it wasn't for free. You know, it's, uh, we live in a pretty good time. You know, we have our disappointments and our challenges, uh, but, but uh, we live in an interesting place in a cross section of an interesting time in history uh, where uh, we live under an attempt at self-rule, right? And um, and it's it's a great experiment, and it's it's gone pretty well, you know. Um, but I think when we get to the other side, we're going to just see it as another human experiment, and and uh, 
in another portion of humanity. And I think we're also going to have a different perspective when we get to the other side. Yeah. We're going to have a full perspective. And so Titus 3, 1 to 11, it reads this way. And I'm reading from the New Living. Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone. Let's just slow down here for a second. <laughs> he didn't say that, did he? And must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle. Show true humility to everyone. Once we too were foolish. I'm so glad he talks about us in the past tense on that one. Well, we've arrived. Once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But when our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. Let me paraphrase that. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, it changed everything. It changed everything. He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, he washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit. Um, I totally forgot to intro Compassion First. <laughs> you guys are awesome. Compassion First does really awesome work. And we're having this concert on the 23rd. Would you just all come? <laughs> and... I'm going to ask Drew if we can just leave the stuff out there for the next couple weeks, and I'll send more flyers and so on. I'm not very good at my job. <laughs> because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit an eternal life. That's eternal life under an eternal government, by the way. And this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to, to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. Do not get involved in foolish discussions about spiritual pedigrees or quarrels or in quarrels and, and fights about obedience to Jewish laws. These things are useless and a waste of time. If people are causing divisions among you, give them a first and a second warning. And after that, have nothing more to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth and their own sins condemn them. It's actually an amazing passage of scripture. And it's quite beautiful. It's a sermon series on its own. And don't worry, by saying that, it doesn't mean I'm going to go tremendously long. Um, but if this were an intro, this is what stands out. Submitting to government authorities, it's one of those hard teachings. And, and when the scripture... When the scripture is in alignment with the things that make sense to me, there, there's more harmony. You know, uh, when there's an alignment with our sensibilities or our knowledge, um, even if you're rebellious, the wisdom passages make sense, right? And, and so you can be in rebellion to God and read the wisdom passages and know that they're right. Uh, we can embrace that we are sinners and that God is perfect and that there's a, a, a mysterious grace-filled thing that happens that closes that gap and we don't understand it. We're never going to know the full mystery of that. 
but, but we can kind of wrap our heads around that kind of acceptance. We have no problem aligning ourselves as imperfect humans to a holy God, knowing that he is the one that overcomes the incongruities, not us overcoming the incongruities to be aligned with him. It is when he asks us to align with things that are unholy that it becomes confusing. And, and this passage, and, and the passages that systematically concur with it in scripture, aren't just talking about the big authorities, the president and the senate, and it's talking about the small authorities too. It's talking about all authorities. In fact, it's somewhat tilted to the smaller authorities in its addressing. It's, it's from the president to the alderman to the dog catcher. And that guy that pulled you over last week to give you a traffic ticket and you realize it's the snot-nosed kid that grew up next door that you never liked, you know? <laughs> it's that guy. Um, and for some reason, somebody gave him a badge. It's a hard teaching for a number of reasons. First, it, 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 does, it tests the absolutism of Scripture. Um, do God's laws ever conflict? That's, a, that's an ethical question, and it's a whole semester in Bible college. You know, you've got uh, non-conflicting absolutists who believe that God's laws never conflict. And then you've got, uh, you know, uh, graded absolutists, which is what I am. Uh, and I would say that most sensible people are. But the non-conflicting absolutists, they're like the Pharisees. They think that the graded absolutists are heretics, right? And so I'll just uh, walk out my heresy here in front of you. Um, <laughs> There are times, you know, if an authority says, take this gun and shoot this person, that that's a, you now have a conflict, right? And, and you have to reach for the higher truth um, and, and God's will in that moment. Um, I mean, for example, can we agree it would be very hard to be teaching this passage right now if we are, uh, were of fighting age living in Moscow at this moment? Right? That would be very, it'd be a very, very hard teaching. So let's just, uh, let's just get it out of the way that the preacher doesn't know everything. And, and that there's an absolutism that's sort of hard to grasp. But uh, the temptation is to dismiss portions of scripture. And we're seeing that in our culture right now. We're seeing it in the church. We say, well, we're going to actually carve out and dismiss these portions of scripture uh, because they're not culturally acceptable uh, in this time. And, and that's the slippery slope. And so, so we confront ourselves as we face the, the word of God. And, and, you know, the thing is, is it's difficult as well because it bumps up against some of our sensibilities. Should I have to submit myself to somebody who does not submit themselves to God? Should I have to submit myself to an unholy person? Um, should I have to submit myself to someone that I think everything they're doing is going the wrong way? And it gets into a little bit of a reset on what it means to be a New Testament believer, even a New Testament church. And I'm sure that I've said this here before. Um, one, I really like things when they go my way. You know, I really like my way. And, and if you would like to be evangelized to my way of thinking, I'm happy to tell you about it, right? I feel so strongly about it that I would say, hey, I think my way is our way. Like, I assume that you think my way, right? And that's just, you know, that's just my pure narcissism on display, right? And, 
And, and I think that our way should look a lot like my way, and that, that would be a good way, right? But I also want to be a part of a thriving New Testament church. And, you know, churches that make mission statements, um, you know, nine times out of ten, they'll start their mission statement by saying, we are a New Testament church, which is a great statement. It's just a terrible reality, being a New Testament church. And the fact is, is that we live under a constitution that affords us more freedoms than the Bible does. And yet, as Christians, as biblical Christians, the Bible is our higher authority or our highest authority. But it guarantees us nothing in terms of individual freedom. And so we can contest for individual freedoms, and that's our right to do that, except not on biblical grounds, not in the name of Christ, okay? That's a huge bifurcation. I I remember talking to a guy for a long time who used to go to this church, and we would talk about God, but all of his statements were this country, this country. Hey, the thing about this country... And I said, my friend, that is your worldview. Your worldview, the highest level of worldview that you have is this country. It is not a holy God. And I would just encourage you to expand your worldview to include a holy God, the creator of the universe. And that the short history of this country is not a good sample size uh, for all of his work. We want to be a part of a thriving New Testament church. Okay, let's just talk about the New Testament church. Here's a breakdown on the first several chapters of Acts. Acts 1, Jesus leaves. Acts 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which was disruptive, by the way. Acts 3, Peter heals a guy, and he may or may not have started trash-talking the religious leaders. (laughs) Acts 4, Peter and John get called to the principal's office. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira get beamed up. And the apostles are off to the principal's office again, this time thrown in the clink. Acts 6, dealing with disgruntled older people and the beginning of organized Christianity. Where did organized religion start? Acts 6. Acts 7, Stephen is stoned to death. Acts 8, the church is scattered. They had 15 minutes of kumbaya in Acts 4. 15 minutes. We say, we want to be a New Testament church. I think we're carving out that 15 minutes and saying, this is what it should look like. Everybody sells their stuff. Everybody shares. Everybody loves each other. We hug all the time. 15 minutes. Acts 8, completely disrupted. The church is scattered. The greatest period of growth in the church in history. We want to be a New Testament church. Here's the thing. Historically speaking... We do live under some very special circumstances here. And to be protective of those circumstances just makes sense. And, and the thing is, as well, there's no question. We are watching it change in front of us. And, and when it comes to things like this teaching, as we watch things change in front of us, when it comes to submitting to government authorities. I'm glad Paul gave a full exposition because what he says here is actually more fully written out in Romans 13 and it's actually quite beautiful and it lends to two or three realizations that I hope that we could all hold on to. And the first is this. 
we serve a transcendent savior. And we see it in verses three to seven. What does that even mean? And what does it mean for us that we serve a transcendent savior? It means he's above it all. And we should be too. We should be above it all. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins. What does this have to do with submitting to government authorities? Except that he changed everything. Paul goes right into things that are bigger than us. He goes right into things that are so far above our heads and bigger than the subject at hand. New birth, new life, the Holy Spirit, eternal life. Our little situation now versus eternal life. He, he puts it in perspective, in the perspective of eternality. You know, it's not like Jesus didn't confront these things, by the way. In fact, he was constantly dragged into these conversations. And quite frankly, note that the followers of Jesus, the closest followers, were always trying to drag him into political power. Always. They were so convinced that he was going to be the one that would throw her off Rome that they were going to be subjugated to Israel and, and that instead of the other way around, he was going to fix this thing. And he kept saying, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. You don't get it. You don't get it. Right up to the cross. And after the cross, after they had to embrace the fact that he died and resurrected himself, kept all of his promises and said, this is not how it's going to go down. They had this overtime with him. Forty-some days of overtime with Jesus. Bonus days. And they spent some of those days elbowing him in the ribs and saying, you're going to do it now? Now is when you're going to burn this thing down? And he was so tired of the conversation that he just changed the subject and said, that's my father's business. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. Yeah. You're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit. Because there's this guy, Paul, coming along. He's going to say things like, submit to government authorities. You're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit. Probably the most notable time that Jesus was confronted by this and confronted it back is the incident in Mark 12 where they're trying to trap him on two fronts. They're asking him both a legal and a cultural question at the same time. So they're asymmetrically coming at him to, to double bind him. They're trying to trap him in an answer that's going to either violate the legal cultural law or violate his re religious law. Later, the leaders sent some Pharisees Listen to this. Pharisees and supporters of Herod. They sent politicized Pharisees. Religiously and politically activated people. The Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are, how impartial, and you don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? And Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and said, Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the Roman coin, and I'll tell you. And when they handed it to me, he asked, Whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well, then Jesus said, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what is God's. His reply completely amazed them. 
Now just look at this setup. The primer is to his, appear, to his purity and they're buttering him up. Let's agree you do everything right. You're impartial. You don't play games. How about taxes? Okay, it's a universal truth. Nobody likes taxes. Reason number one for hatred of government. And if you don't mind taxes, then you're never satisfied with how they're spent. I mean, there's some dissatisfaction on everybody's part. Nobody wants to get a call from the IRS, right? Because they never call to say, hey, just checking in on you, you know. Wanted to see how you're doing. Thank you for running a robust business and doing what government can't do. Just a courtesy call to say how much we appreciate you. This was the case in Jesus' day, even more so. Jesus made a very controversial decision in recruiting Matthew, a tax collector. It brought several implications to the whole group. First, nobody was going to like him because nobody liked these guys. Second, it assumed that he was absolutely corrupt because it assumed that all taxers were corrupt. The, the business model was much more like the mob than the IRS, where, where agents would go out and squeeze people, and, and then they would skim. If they were trying to put Jesus in a corner, he volunteered himself to the deeper corner. He just said, hey, I'll make it harder on myself. Let me just go all the way into the corner and then says, show me a coin whose image is on it. And says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God. Let me just explain the implication of that coin. There's a graven image on it. He's holding in his hand a violation of the second commandment. The second commandment. Well, how do we get off with Jesus violating the second commandment? We understand that all of the laws of God were were constructions to house intimacy. Okay? And some people needed the construct. But we see throughout the Old Testament that many of our men and women of old yet related to God outside of that construct. That their hearts fully belonged to God. They, They knew a circumcision of the heart that was transcendent from the circumcision of the body. And so the Ten Commandments, they are real, but they are a reflection or a construct that is meant to guarantee an intimacy. And so Jesus, while holding this coin, violating the second commandment, is not violating the law of God because his heart is fully God's. A friend of mine, an old friend, Betty Drebus, explained it to me this way one time. She said about the law, because here's the thing with the law. Laws beget more laws. That is a historical fact. You write a law, there's going to be layers of laws on top of that law. The same thing is true with the religious law. And, and the Pharisees, I mean, the work of living that out from their clothing and the tallits on the clothing and the phylacteries on their wrists and foreheads that, that, that signified the knowledge of their head and the work of their hands, but not a circumcision of the heart. You start layering these, these laws up and, and you fully miss the point Betty would say it's like this you tell your child not to touch the stove when it's on because it'll hurt them but then to make sure that it never happens you unplug the stove and then to reinforce your point you put a a gate at the kitchen door 
And then to further reinforce your point, you change the locks on the house so you can't even get into the house. That that's what the law upon the law does when the point is, I do not want you, my dear three-year-old, to burn yourself. It will hurt so badly. When he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, he said quite a lot. He said, hey, listen, you're willing to get paid in fiat currency. You're willing to buy your bread in fiat currency, doing business. Don't talk to me about taxes. And he transcended the conversation. And it's an instructive point for all of us. He just refused to get into it. And it's a really wise path. It's not passivity, by the way. It's transcendence. There are some of these fistfights we just don't need to get into, but we're so willing to. Biblical instruction, like submitting to government authorities, it's a high calling, but it's not an easy calling. It's not an easy calling to stay above the fray. But the example of Jesus to stay above it, there are conversations that we're invited to, we're goaded to, we're tempted to, and our calling is to follow Jesus, and in doing so, stay transcendent. We've seen a lot of disruption lately. Some call it a culture war. I don't argue that it is. I just refuse to participate in it. It's disheartening because in our gut, we know that the war is not going to solve any problems, that it's just going to make it worse. And here's the thing, and this town of any town would know this. There are people who profit from war and want wars to keep going. Same thing with the culture war. You don't think CNN and Fox News want this thing to go on forever? They are just laughing all the way to the bank, as long as we're fist fighting. You all live north of Seattle, I live in Portland. I think we've seen it all. I think we've got two dumpster fires right in front of us. Not just dumpster fires, but the dumpsters are filled with tires. Self-righteousness informs the whole thing. Everybody's got God on their side. And the lie of the day is that you need to take a side in the conflict. You know what breaks my heart over the racial divisions? Is that I know for decades there have been men and women in back rooms sitting around tables of all ethnicities doing the hard scrabble work of working this out that aren't involved in that fight. And their work is just... (laughs) blown off the table people of different religions trying to trying to work it out people doing the work of God because reconciliation is the work of God and it's not done this way he has shown us it's not done this way secondly we will face tests of transcendent faith Verse 5, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. I think tests of faith in our thinking are sometimes limited to difficult little personal circumstances. No, they are a test of what we actually believe. Do we believe that God is in control? Do we actually believe it? And the evidence of whether we believe it is whether our behavior suggests we believe it. Or whether our behavior suggests, you know, i got to go fix this thing for God. I'm going to get this fixed up for him, give it back to him. We treat God like he's an aloof. We treat him like the boss. Uh, He doesn't know anything. He hasn't been on the street for a while. He doesn't, he's, he's an idiot. 
do we actually believe everything that God says? That's a test of faith. Do you believe what he says? Do we actually believe that he's in control? I would argue that the behavior of the church at large suggests that we don't believe that. We don't believe that he's in control and we gotta go get control back. Honestly, this is, this is critical because our, our Christian behavior, let me just talk globally, it's sometimes perplex, perplexing because we can behave like he's away on vacation. Oh, he just makes all the money. He doesn't do anything. What do we really believe about God? Do we believe Romans 13 saying that all of these authorities are appointed by God? That's a hard teaching. But I would argue that God appoints people for a lot of different reasons. And one very palpable reason may be our humbling. It may be our humbling. That may be a reason. When we feel that things in the broader culture and leadership aren't going our way, it's an actual test of whether we trust God. It's an actual test of, of our faith. Listen, I was, uh, we had a fundraiser a few weeks ago in Portland with some of our oldest donors, and, and there weren't supposed to be guests, but uh, there were three guests that came um, just outside. It was an old relationship dinner. And so I could talk a little more intimately, and, you know, it's a trusted group, right? And I wanted to make sort of an illustration of some of the tables we get invited to, right? And so I threw this picture up. And the reason why I threw it up is because Wind is in it. She's our executive director in Indonesia. Go ahead, that picture with there's four of us. Right there, or five of us. Okay, that's Senator Merkley in the middle, a junior senator from, from Oregon. All right, I'm just going to disclose that I've never voted for Senator Merkley. But he's my senator in Oregon. If I need a visa, a support letter, if I need a support letter for a grant, if I need anything... I got to call him and I got to call our senior senator. The gal on the right is a dear friend. We did some work for her 10 years ago. And because of that work, we can call and ask for anything. All right. So Merkley is a very liberal Democrat senator. And this guy in the front row interrupted me. And he said, I got a real problem with that. And he said, you, you're, you're, it's like you're campaigning for him. And I explained, I said, no, listen. I told the work that we did for that office 10 years ago. It was a great story about the church. Four churches came around in Asylee and, and, and ushered her into her future. Great story about the church. And, and I thought he was satisfied. But then afterwards, right back to the same conversation. And then he had a third conversation with my father-in-law. And my father-in-law said, no, I got him settled down. It's good. And then he sends me a scathing email. This was my point, by the way. I want to make my point. I say, hey, listen, I've had meetings with a lot of really cool leaders. Some I'm aligned with, some I'm not aligned with. And honestly, some of the people that I'm not aligned with, I've liked a little better. They've been nicer people, you know. But if I had one last meal to have with any leader on the face of this earth before I died, this is the leader. Go to the next picture. Her name's Ibu Susi. She's the community leader in the Ranka Cemetery, the poorest place I've ever been. Little Muslim lady, 
who lets us in, lets us come into her house, who has authority in her community. And we say, hey, can we come in here? And we're coming in the name of Jesus, by the way. And she says, come. What can we do for you? How can we serve you? What, what can happen here? That's the most important leader on the face of this earth right now. Because here's the thing. If she comes to know Christ, if I believe the scriptures literally as I presented this morning, this script flips. The last will be first. The first will be last. We're working for her in heaven. So I want dinner with her. I want her to remember my name when we get to the other side. And let me tell you something. This illiterate, uneducated woman is somebody's authority who I submit to. I do not do anything. We do not do anything in the rank of cemetery without her permission. And as such, it is blessed. This is a hard question. It's a hard one to answer honestly. But what is our evangelical reputation in the broader culture right now? And is it an earned one? And I would look at this church and say, where the people of this church are concerned, I would say, no, it's not earned. I think a lot of it is perpetrated by self-appointed loudmouths, okay, who don't speak for us, but for some reason they think they do. Much of the church reputation is affected that way. I was talking to a pastor a couple weeks ago who was just struggling with his church. They wouldn't let him they wouldn't let him move a piece of furniture, his church council and I mean they're just I mean they're just mean to him. And he asked them honestly one day, he said, What do you think the community thinks of you? And they answered honestly with pride. They said, um, they probably uh, think that we're angry and mean. And they wore that like a badge of honor. And let me just suggest that that might be missing the point. The Titus 3 cliff notes are a cliff notes version of Romans 13. Everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God. And those in position of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against God, what God has instituted. Paul, could you have just put the pen down? And they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of authorities? Then do what's right. goes on and on and on. Pay your taxes too. For the same reason, government workers need to be paid. Pastors need to be paid. Right? None of us works for free. Do we actually believe the scripture when it says all authority is appointed by God. I do, but I admit that it's confusing. And I'm forced to admit that God knows more than I do. I don't understand why he does things the way he does sometimes, but I know this, when things aren't as I would design them, it puts me on a narrower path where I just have to follow him and trust him. And that's when my witness is tested. That's when my faith is tested. That's when what is true internally about me becomes more of an outside story. And the last thing is that, that we are responsible for a transcendent witness. Verses 9 to 11. I always struggled with the word witness growing up because I had a high-pressure youth pastor when I was in junior high who was quite a narcissist. 
and he needed to have the largest youth group in town. And the only way to have the largest youth group in town is to have your kids recruit more people, and that was witnessing. And, you know, it's... I always, so I always felt like it was an obligation to tell others about Christ. And therefore, our responsibility as to whether other people got saved or not. And I agree that we have our part. Um, but it sort of erases the responsibility and the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, it felt off to me. That whole pressurization felt off to me. And my, my brain... My adolescent brain had not caught up with my gut yet, but my gut was telling me it was wrong. There is a part that's not ours, and it is the work of the Holy Spirit. Along with all of the other jobs of the Holy Spirit, my, my mentor, Jean Lowry, who passed away last year, she used to ask me this question. She'd say, Mike, she was from Alabama, what are the jobs of the Holy Spirit? And I would say, well, I'd tell her what I thought I knew. He's the counselor and a helper and the convictor of sin, the converter of the soul, right? And she says, don't you think he likes his job? And I say, yeah, I would think so. He says, then why are you trying to do his job for him? <laughs> it's more focused on how we live our lives and the story that our lives tell as a result. Does it tell a transcendent story of hope? Our witness is our story. Not just our, our obligation to tell people about Christ, but our story, the story that our life tells. That's what Paul's saying here. Don't be getting into these arguments. It's not good for our story, our collective story, if you keep getting into these arguments. It's a distraction to the good that God is asking us to do. And after a while, it gets destructive. It's not unlike Paul's encouragement to Timothy, which I think is misunderstood and mistaught by most people who are young. When he says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. That's not an entitlement passage. That was not a, a license to exercise entitlement and to demand respect. Because, hey, don't you disrespect me. Instead, live such a life that nobody would think to look down on you. I think this is embodied by your pastor. And I know that he is 10 years older than he looks. Because he, he's still a baby face. But... And he's not as young as he once was. But you remember that first Sunday that he and his little tiny kids walked down this aisle and you all went, oh, they are so young. <laughs> but he didn't miss a step. And it wasn't because of a demand for pastoral respect. It's just how he lived his life. He came in here so easy. I remember the very words when he served the first communion that first Sunday morning. He said, okay, we're going to have a group snack now. <laughs> and just disarmed everybody. The fact is, is our witness of submitting to all, to everyone that we can, tells a story that we trust God with everything. That we have an assignment of being people of peace. That is our assignment, by the way. We're supposed to put it on our feet. So everywhere we go, we take the peace of God. Right. And that we aren't throwing up impediments to people seeing the story of God in us. Let me just finish this way. Some applications. I could go on and on, by the way. And I, 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 you don't want that. Only I want that. So, <laughs> Romans 13, 10. Love does no wrong to others. So love fulfills the requirements of God's law. Katie, you can come on back up if you'd like. Remember these things with me. Remember that God is on the throne. 
We need that reminder. Remember that God himself is a mystery. We do not have him figured out. Okay? Joe Aldrich, Dr. Joe Aldrich, the president of Multnomah University when I was in Bible college, would say over and over again, none of us is going to get the good housekeeping seal of approval for doctrine when we get to heaven. God is a mystery. We don't know his means. We don't know his ways. We just know he is who he says he is and that he keeps all of his promises. And we can know this in this moment, this moment of history that is so confusing that this is exactly where God has us right now. You can know the will of God as to this moment in history. You and I belong here. This is where he put us for this moment. We can know it's his will. Remember that he's working in us. And remember that we are his messengers of hope. And frankly, we're not just messengers of hope. We're the messengers of all of his attributes. That's our story. There's so much more here. Just the fact that you might have an interaction with a person in government, government and that you might be the only point of kindness that, that person knows in an entire day is so valuable. You are the only salt and light. You're the only city on a hill that they cross over with. I wish I had included a picture of a meeting we had with the Surabaya City Police a couple months ago. We're a bunch of Christians without hijabs sitting around a table and this woman, Muslim woman with a hijab, who was the head of the investigative directorate for women and children. And she knew she was outnumbered there. And for us to say, we are submitted to you. We are not going to do anything outside of your authority. We are only here to support you. Is there anything we can do for you? In the words of our friend Shirley Lamoureux, all is grace. I have an intractable situation in my life right now. And I have God telling me, what makes you think this situation is apart from my grace and that you don't get to have my grace on this situation? What makes you think you get to hold back forgiveness in this particular situation? I'm reminded of a Christian author that is a friend of mine who sold millions and millions of books. And his publishers sued him and claimed that they wrote the story and that he stole it from them. And I remember sitting having lunch with him and, and it was going to come to a judgment that wasn't going to be completely favorable for him. He wasn't going to walk out with everything. He was going to lose something. And the something was going to be millions of dollars. And I said, how do you feel about that? And he, this is what he said. And I just, I'm, I'm amazed by it. He said, you know, this is just something that they have to do. They feel that they have to do this. And that's all he had to say about it. And I, listen, I think it'd be easier to say if I had millions of my own dollars, but it's something of yours that's being stolen and he still had grace. Father in heaven, we come before you and above all things, we just find ourselves in desperate need of you. And even when we're confronted by the hard teachings of scripture, we find your grace. And so may we know it today, Lord, in a manner that 
maybe we haven't even known before. And for the needs that walk into this room, when I mention a personal intractable situation, I would have to say that everybody that walked into the room has one, that that is a part of this journey. And that even today we could know your grace and your forgiveness and know personal healing as a result and be further empowered by the Holy Spirit to minister to others as a result as well. And we pray for those in authority over us. Lord, our city and our state officials, Lord God. Lord, our, our executive administration, our president, some that we voted for and some that we didn't. That God, today you would bless them and that we would be generous enough in our hearts to say, bless them with everything they need especially what they need to know you more. And we pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.